September 10th, 1975. Top stories in the news. City Council leaders urge Mayor Dean not to close the Bronx House of Detention and to hire 300 more correction officers. Senate Finance Committee okays a six-month extension of the federal income tax cuts without any federal spending ceiling. This is Lester Smith reporting. Next news as it happens. Next scheduled news, 11 o'clock. Over WOR Radio 710, the top of New York. Venus 
to step on the surface of the moon. There's never been a recorded squirrel who looked up at the sky and says, one day, squirreldom will land on Mars. No way. It's man. And so much of this history, going all the way back to the, to the very earliest days that we know of, uh, prehistory days, much of man's history is the history of his travel. The great age of exploration. Do you remember when you read back in, uh, in school? In fact, they, they termed that the age of exploration. When the people like Francis Drake and uh, Henrik Hudson, John Cook, uh, that was a great man. Um, these people were people who did what all of mankind secretly always wanted to do. <laughs> See what's on the other side of the next hill. Uh, it's a, it's a, and, and there's no, no people, no people in the history of man, outside of possibly the Bedouins, uh, no people in the history of man that have been more driven by this curious urge than Americans. Now, now, uh, Maybe perhaps it's because of our antecedents. You know, this is the, uh, we're coming into the uh, big year of the bicentennial, and not much has been said about what makes Americans different from the rest of the world. For one thing, the very beginnings of America, the, the, the continent was settled by people who took a fantastic chance. Imagine what it would be like uh, to, uh, to leave everything, even if it's bad, to leave everything. Uh, your entire heritage, your physical home, uh, whatever uh, security you had by having friends, people, relatives, and uh, just head out into literally the roaring unknown. And I mean the unknown. I don't mean just pull up stakes and move to Australia, which is what you may think to do today. But that's not the same as pulling up stakes and heading out across uh, uh, incredibly dangerous sea in uh, inadequate, by, of course, by that standard, they didn't know this, but the inadequate uh, vessel at fantastic hardships and head out across the ocean to the unknown, literally the unknown. And uh, that's what our country was started with, with people like that. Uh, even people who came later were pulling up stakes, giving up everything, and coming to another country, which they didn't know where they would land. They didn't know what they would do. They didn't know whether it would work out. Even the recent immigrants. I'm talking about people uh, as recent as, uh, say, uh, the great wave of uh, immigration around uh, 1900. Uh, many people living in New York are uh, sons and daughters of people who did that. But uh, they, they just pull up your roots and... and uh, Code into the unknown. It just takes a different kind of guy. Because a lot of them didn't, you know. A lot of them stayed right where they were. And what was the difference? Well, no no uh, moral judgment. They were just different kind of people. And so this is one of the reasons why the car, let's take that for example, is more important to Americans than it is to other people in the rest of the world because we still remain basically a nomadic people. Uh, who, who want to keep on the move. Uh, you know, nowhere, nowhere else in the world do people think in terms of when they quit their work, retire in other words, do they leave their hometown and go somewhere else? It's Americans who do that. 
You ever occur to you that this is not them? And that's the world. In other words, if a, guy, if a guy is a shoemaker, for example, in Leeds, and he retires, he doesn't move to uh, south of England. He generally stays right there in Leeds. <laughs> that's the way it is. And uh, that's why when you travel to many countries, uh, you go through towns in various countries, and uh, you're always struck by the fact that there are so many old people, or many, many old people in uh, small towns in Italy and towns in England and in Holland. And uh, you say, well, what is it? Well, do they live longer there? No. It's just that they don't move and they're visible. In our society, most of the old people uh, pull up stakes and go to uh, Arizona. Or they go to St. Petersburg. Or they go to San Diego. But you don't see them <laughs> in the towns that they left. And so... Uh, we're different, uh, really. And then why do they do this? Well, for one thing, a lot of people feel that if their job uh, is over, now they can do what they've always wanted to do secretly, move endlessly over the landscape. How many times have you ever heard people say, well, what I want to do is when I retire, I want to get myself one of them Winnebago's, and I just want to travel all the time. See, <laughs> that's not known to a person who lives uh, in uh, Marseille, for example. He doesn't have this desire to to uh, get a Winnebago and spend the rest of his life just traveling around. He would consider that extremely inconvenient to begin with. And it is, but uh, we welcome that inconvenience. The last week, I spent a fantastic week. For those of you who've never spent any time on a sailing vessel, uh, you just don't know what you're missing, really, basically. And uh, you don't have to own a, a sailing boat to do it either, uh, because in most great areas of the world today now, uh, charter boats are available to anybody who, who decides to do the ultimate vacation. And it is, if, you, if you're that kind of man, it is the ultimate vacation to go traveling on a on a, uh, an ocean-going sailing vessel. I'm not, I'm not talking about the great vessels. By the way, when we were in, uh, to, to, to show you what, are, what other things are available, when uh, we were in, uh, I believe it was... Uh, Yes, it was Guadalupe, uh, in the uh, harbor of the small town that we landed in. In Guadalupe, we, were, we went ashore and we had uh, we had dinner in, in a very small native uh, restaurant. Nothing to do with uh, tourist-type restaurants where they serve chopped-up fish done with tomatoes. And uh, they served local lobsters, great big chunks of them, just served on a piece of, on a plate, and you just grab them. It's the first place I've ever seen where when they uh, came around with dessert, what do you think they gave us for dessert? The wild thing. Everybody you know, kind of flipped that when the when the dessert was served, what, what what dessert was was a great big platter covered with a big pile of ice cream bars with sticks sticking out of them. And you know that makes great sense <laughs> when you think about it. <laughs> I mean, it never occurred to me to have an ice cream bar, but you don't ever have ice cream bars. But uh, nevertheless, in the island uh, in that Guadalupe, Guadalupe is uh, one of the oldest. Um, and uh, considered the biggest, it's the biggest, most one of the most interesting of all the islands down in the Windward Islands, way down. See, there's two groups of islands, the Windward and the Leeward Islands. Leeward, if you prefer the non-nautical uh, pronunciation, the Windward and the Leeward Islands. And uh, the Windward are the islands that go, see, I have a world map, which I'm now holding here, audience. See? This is a big world map. It's called the Political World, produced by the National Geographic Society, cartographic division 
division. It's a very elegant map. And uh, here you see, as the, as the Windward Islands go stretching way out, here, here we are, way down here, you see Grenada, and here's uh, Barbados, and uh, these are the, the Windward Islands, and they get the full sweep of the wind as it comes across the trade winds, as it comes this way up. They sweep up, up, up through here, and as they, as they go over this area here, moving always this way, uh, they're called the, the Windward Islands because they are in the very teeth of the wind that moves at all times. And that would be logical, you see, when, when Columbus sailed from here, I'm pointing right now here to Spain. He sailed out of Spain, and as he came down here, the trade winds carried him right to these islands. Now, had he, of course, he would have had to do a different kind of sailing to sail up through here, through the North Atlantic, and come down this way, uh, landing in the direction or in the vicinity of Philadelphia. Actually, he swept down this way and came up, and here he was uh, in the taste of the, right in the very teeth of the, the uh, trade winds, and uh, it would naturally follow that he would land in the Windward Islands, which is where he did. That's right down here off the coast of South America. All this area, San Salvador, uh, but he worked his way up to this area. And you know that uh, the legend of Columbus is still very strong down in those islands, and there are places that you can see that where uh, his, uh, one of his four voyages, you know, he made four voyages to the New World. Most of us think of that one voyage. He made four of them. And uh, as he... As he uh, uh, traveled throughout the islands, and his brother and uh, other people traveled uh, with his party. They really established a whole European tradition. You know, this is the reason why, I mean, I, I hope I'm not belaboring obvious history, but the reason why many of the islands down there, and in fact South America, is Spanish-speaking, is because he sailed out of Spain. History would have been very different had, say, uh, uh, one of the English explorers, say, for example, uh, Drake or Cabot, had uh, made the original discoveries in that area, all that area would undoubtedly have been today speaking uh, English would be the basic uh, language. But uh, the whole Hispanic culture down there was culture that was imported by uh, originally Christopher Columbus, Cristoforo Columbus, Colombo, as he, as, he <laughs> as he sailed through the Windward Passage and uh, first made uh, contact on uh, San Salvador, and uh, he, he touched at these various islands. And the whole object of my trip last week was to retrace some of the, a, a portion of one of uh, Columbus's voyages. He uh, sailed in the vicinity of Guadeloupe, uh, Martinique. These, by the way, are French islands, because back in the uh, 1500s, uh, there was a great uh, tussle going on between France and Spain as to who would ultimately control the new world. And uh, France uh, staked out uh, a lot of claims, and so did Spain, and then, of course, there was the English. They were in it, too. And uh, so you'll find English islands down there, French islands, and Spanish islands. And uh, Guadeloupe, Martinique, uh, the Saints, uh, those, uh, those islands are very French, very close to those islands, just about 20 miles as we sailed across that strait there, or that... Uh, very tough passage. Uh, just about 20 miles away is the island of Dominica, or Dominica, depending on uh, how you wish to pronounce it. It's both ways on the islands and that place. Uh, this, uh, this island uh, has another uh, culture. It's British, basically, as it was originally. So they're very different. People are different. Houses are different. And you're just 20 miles away. By the way, I talked to a Frenchman there. 
they have just established a radio station on that island which broadcasts to all the Guadalupe, Martinique islands. The 50,000-watt station, by the way, on 1140 on your AM dial. They call it medium wave there. And uh, uh, the reason that they're established on it on a British island is because it's illegal to have a radio station that has commercials on a French island. Uh, so they're just outside of the, <laughs> the border, and they're broadcasting, and it's Radio Jimbo is their call. They don't have a call sign like we have. It's Radio Jimbo. And they just went on the air three months ago, and we, we stood on the shores of Dominique and talked about this as one radio man to the other. We were talking about the whole scene. By the way, speaking of uh, radio stations, I mean, they hear us down there. That's, that's another surprising thing. Do you know that WOR has listened to uh, down in the Caribbean, on the far reaches of the Caribbean, uh, by many people who look upon the station, and it's not just English-speaking people, really, basically, but people bilingual. They look upon this station as a kind of a voice of America, uh, you know, a, a genuine voice coming out of, uh, out of America, New York specifically. And uh, they listen a great deal to us down there. So they can get music on any other station down there. There's thousands of stations playing music, but there's only one station that has Pegin. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> they, do, they, they listen to it. They really do. So, uh, by the way, if you want to know what you're listening to, this is WOR, New York. Now we're back in business here. And uh, I hope you find this interesting. Uh, now, I'll, I'll give you some technical. For any sailors that are listening, uh, people who are, you know, into boats, really into them, I'll give you the technical details on what we were sailing on. There were three boats that were in our little, our little fleet. Uh, the mains, uh, the one I was on, was uh, the Celestial, spelled S-E-A, Celestial. Uh, the other one was uh, Venturemos, which is spelled V-E-N-C-E-R-E-M-O-S, pronounced Venturemos. Uh, the other one was the Luciada. Now, I have the actual technical details on each one of these boats. Magnificent. These are all ocean-going sailing boats, uh, sometimes called yachts, if you prefer. But they're basically built for sail, which means that they're not the same as a cruise ship. A sailing boat moving along under uh, heavy seas is a, is a handful. It takes really competent, serious, very highly trained people to sail them especially in uh, the kind of waters that we ran into. By the way, we did sail into one island, though, uh, that one night. Fantastic sight. Uh, we, just one of those coincidences, but a big ship sailed in. I'm talking about a sailing ship. A true museum piece sailed into Guadalupe the night we were there. And uh, she, she anchored pretty far out in the uh, anchorage there. It was an unbelievable sight. It was a tremendous sailing boat that was built in 1902. Enormous thing. It was about 250 feet or maybe 300 feet long. And it looked like something right out of the clipper ship age, which it practically was. After all, built in 1902, was not that long after the clipper ship age. And it was a tremendous sailing vessel. Uh, she just lay out there at anchor, and, and uh, you know, it was a fascinating thing to see. It uh, sails across the, uh, the Atlantic regularly. And uh, people people book passage on this baby and <laughs> sail around. Yes, they sail around. And so so uh, we we wanted to see it. So uh, we took our dinghy, the little boat that uh, we used to uh, to go into shore and to keep contact with other boats. We took this little rubber dinghy 
with a little uh, 25 horsepower Yamaha engine on it. And we scooted over to this boat just laying there. Fantastic thing. And he has a full crew of about 20 people to sail this baby. And it is something else, I'll tell you. It's a, it's like pictures you see out of, uh, you know, old, uh, old, old geography books. Uh, uh, aboard the, uh, the thing, it has a teakwood deck polished honed down to fire, you know, just absolutely. And it, it was, and it's been sailing regularly, by the way. This boat was not rebuilt or anything. It has been sailing regularly since 1902. It was never, uh, you know, chopped up or dry docked or anything like that. She was interned into war in England. It was basically a Dutch boat built in Holland and uh, had been used for a variety of purposes since 1902. And the reason that it was a sort of a historical boat, it was the first motor sailor in the world. It was the first sailing boat that had uh, motors basically as part of its propulsion system. And uh, there she is. She's down there. <laughs> Fantastic sight. Well, the, the, uh, the, the sails, the, the masts on this thing, were roughly 17 stories high. You ready for that game? Uh, that's a lot of that's a lot of rigging, and uh, they climbed that rigging too. These guys were climbing up and down it like a monkey. But uh, there she was. So, nevertheless, getting back to to uh, these boats that we were on, there were three of us. Uh, first of all, the the Venturemos. I'll give you the actual technical uh, details of it. Uh, she's 65 feet long. Uh, she has a 16 foot four inch beam was designed by Sparkman and Stevens and has an IRO, IOR rating of 46.8. And the builder was Nautor. Construction, fiberglass teak. Power, Perkins Diesel, 115 horsepower. Fuel, 300 U.S. gallons. She carried 415 gallons of water and carries an inflatable dinghy. <laughs> That's uh, what she is. And uh, other uh, little niceties, it had a refrigerator aboard and a deep freeze. And uh, its navigation, it carried radio telephones. It carried a Cornell SSB. It carried a Sailor VHF, navigational aids, Brooks and Gatehouse, complete uh, complete electronics. Now, that was the, uh, the uh, Venceremos. Now, the Lusiata was designed by S.M. Vandermeer, built in England in 1973. It's a conventional catch-rigged sailing yacht with steel hull, straight rake stem, and elegant lines. It truly did have elegant lines. The hull is painted white with royal blue boot top line. The overall length is 60 feet and 8 inches. And the waterline length is 46 feet 3 inches. The beam is 16 feet 6 inches at the extreme, and the draft was uh, 8 feet 9 inches loaded. 50 Tons gross was what this baby was, and uh, fifty and the tons TM sixty-two. Sail area three thousand two hundred and sixty-eight square feet, and this baby was powered uh, for auxiliary power by a hundred and ninety horsepower Caterpillar engine. That was the Luciada, beautiful ship, and uh, she she uh, moved real good. Racing, by the way, it was that was basically a racing vessel. Uh, which doesn't come through this information. Now, the one I was on was uh, probably one of the most fascinating boats in the, in the fleet, uh, Celestial. It's an Ocean 71. Ocean meaning the type. 71 is the type number. 
an Ocean 71, the world's largest production fiberglass sailing yacht, designed by E.G. Vanderstock. Notice most of the uh, designers are Dutch. E.D. E.G. Vanderstock from the lines of a famous ocean racing thoroughbred, Stormvogel, which was a great racing ship and built to the finest standards of old-world craftsmanship by Southern Ocean Shipyard Limited of Pool, England. The sister ships include the Trina, uh, also uh, the Ocean Spirit, another Ocean 71 that won the 2,000-mile round Britain race in 1970 and was the first ever over the line in the Cape Town to Rio race the next year. Very fast-moving vessels. Incidentally, our vessel had a border, a very odd a piece of uh, almost, uh, well, it was almost a dichotomy because these are not really what you would call luxury, although they're very comfortable. Uh, it had a border, a sauna, which intrigued everybody. <laughs> it had a real sauna. And so well, it was this little cabin scene. It got hotter than hell. It was a real sauna. And so all the other people from the other boats would come on there to look at this thing, and then they'd take the sauna. They'd go through there. The thing would steam them up, and they'd, after you got hot, you know, you'd spend 10 minutes in the sauna, you'd rush up on deck and just do one clean swan dive into the Caribbean. What a great combination. And then you'd, uh, you'd cool off, you'd swim around in the water a little bit. The water was, of course, uh, crystal clear. And, oh, one day, one day aboard the ship, as, uh, I should do a little more historic work here, but uh, I get carried away by the details. We had a guy aboard the ship who was a professional... He just happened to be in the party. Uh, he was a professional skin diver. Uh, he did diving. He taught us and uh, had worked in the skin diving industry out on the West Coast. He was a pro, a real pro. And so one day, uh, he came, he was doing diving. Where we go, he would dive. He'd go overboard, and he'd come back and tell us what's on the bottom, like, hey, there's an old wrecked Ford down there, or, uh, you know, that kind of groovy stuff. So one day he came aboard, and he had a conch. Now, you know what conch shells are like. You've seen these big shells. He said, there's a plenty, there's a fantastic conch bed down there below. They pronounce it conch in the island. So with that, the cook says, oh, very good. Uh, he says, hey, get, me, get, get some, get maybe, maybe 20 of them. So he dove and he put them in a bucket and he kept coming up with these things and finally got about 20 conchs. Very big shells. And we had, for lunch that afternoon, he just pulled them out of the water about 10 o'clock, and by 12, the guy had it all prepared. There's a special way to take the animal out of the shell. We had, uh, we had uh, Windward Island conch chowder, which is really talk about your gourmet exotica. You just won't get that at the Four Seasons. <laughs> and uh, it was just fantastic. And, of course, they made bimini bread. They made island bread for us and stuff. And uh, there is just a little touch of the kind of things that uh, that life has lived like. Uh, ready for some more in there? Uh, uh, you, you want? Would you like to have a few more commercials now to uh, to keep your uh, sense of security alive? Right? Let's throw the uh, New York uh, type people a little lifeline here. There's nothing like a commercial to make you feel like you're back home, right, gang? There you go. I knew you'd make it. And uh, I made some recordings down there, and in the next couple of days. Uh, you're going to hear some of these things if you're really interested in sailing and and uh, and uh, life in the uh, in the far deep Caribbean. It's uh, it's not the way most people really think it is. You know, you have this idea uh, that the, that the islands are all sort of resorts, 
but you have to live down there for a while, and uh, to, you know, to, to know people down there for a while to understand that it is not always. You know, there's a whole culture, fascinating culture. Uh, for example, the, just in the foods, you know, you can you can always uh, say a lot about a culture in the foods. The foods are quite sophisticated in many of the islands, especially as you get further down, where they get more and more sophisticated. For example, uh, one afternoon we had a magnificent pumpkin soup. See, our our uh, our uh, well, uh, he didn't he really wasn't the cook. He was part of the crew, but he did the cooking on board the ship and was a fantastic cook. He was a native and uh, had been on ships for 11, 15, maybe 15 years prior to that. And he was a recognized great cook. Uh, they make a great pumpkin soup. Uh, three or four other specific island soups. Soup, did you know that soup is a, is a specific art form of parts of the Caribbean? And when you had one of those uh, island soups, you had a definitive soup. Uh, now, pumpkin, the pumpkin is not the same as the pumpkin you think of, you know, the big uh, orange baby with the face cut in it. Uh, these are, they, they call them pumpkins. They're sort of a gourd of the pumpkin family. But uh, it's a very exotic, excellent uh, dish. Now, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting uh, things they have down there. For example, uh, Cristofino, which is a curious uh, vegetable that is served several times. You can bring Cristofino out. It's a, it's a very exotic thing. But uh, enough for the food. Uh, you know, that's just part of the game down there. Uh, as, we, uh, as we got to, uh, as I got to specifically, more and more into guys, I, I was standing on the shore, for example, of this, uh, of this island, Dominica. Dominica. And it's a kind of a remote island. Not many people go there. It's not a tourist island. And, and, and from the water, it looks exactly the way you think Pitcairn Island must look, a South Sea island. The palms hang down over the water, and the, the sand is, uh, is dark sand. It's volcanic sand. And in the back of it, you see these great mountains rising to the sky. It's a very primitive island. Not many roads on it. And I'm standing on the beach then. This guy comes down, a kind of sad-eyed-looking... Caribbean, uh, he's white, but obviously he'd spent his whole life in the Caribbean. He's got a curious, poetic, sad, out-of-it quality. It's hard to put, put it into words. And uh, I don't know how the subject came up, but he said, uh, I said, how do you like it? And I said, oh, fine, fine, enjoy it. What's it like to live here daily? Huh? Life just goes on. He says, you never know what time it is, what day it is. Life just goes on. He says, you know, there's one thing in my life, though, that is important. I said, what? He says, maybe you don't know what this means. And I said, what is it? He says, I'm an amateur radio operator. I said, no kidding. He's VP2 Dancing Queen is his name. VP2 DQ. And we couldn't talk to him radio for half an hour while the water rolled in. Well, this is WOR New York. Stay tuned for In Conversation.